We'll begin in Joshua chapter 6. And there we see that this is the first major battle for the land of promise. God has given Joshua and the children of Israel the assurance that the land is theirs, but yet they still have to go and fight for it. And we're probably, you know, most people when they read Joshua or when somebody preaches or teaches in Joshua, you inevitably end up uh, comparing the things that happen in the book of Joshua to uh, the spiritual warfare that we have as the church and as individual believers. And there's a lot of crossover there. There's a lot of, of important principles about uh, spiritual warfare that can be deduced and can be uh, drawn from the stories in the book of Joshua. But these were not spiritual. These were not only spiritual battles. These were actual battles. These are cities that are walled, that are fortified, that have armies and kings that are going to defend their land, defend their cities, defend their way of life, defend their God uh, against the invading Israelites. And so even though God is with them, even though they've been given the promise and the assurance, there is still quite a bit of fighting that needs to be done. And it will begin here in Jericho. I think most of you on the call tonight, you know the basic story of Jericho, so I'm not going to go through and read it. You know that the Lord instructed Joshua to command the armies led by the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant to encircle the city, to march around the walls of Jericho, fully around, make a complete circuit of the whole city one time each day for six straight days. You can only imagine the bafflement and the amusement this may have caused for those defenders on the walls of Jericho to see these people wandering around the city like that. But uh, if the first six days were confusing, the seventh day was surely confusing because on the seventh day, the Lord commanded them to walk around not once, but seven times. Uh, seven day, seven times on the Sabbath day. There you go. So seven, seven. There's some, for those of you that like the number stuff in the Bibles, uh, that's, that's, some good, uh, that's some good sevens for you right there. And the seventh time they go around, uh, now let me point out the first six times they went around, the first six days, they were told not to make a sound, not to shout, not to sing, just to march, just to walk. But on the seventh day, seventh time they were to go around after they had completed that seventh circuit of the city they were commanded to shout and the priests that were carrying the Ark of the Covenant were commanded to blow their trumpets, their ram's horns, their shofars and the city would be theirs and so they followed the Lord's instruction they did as he commanded and when they gave the shout and when the trumpet sounded, the Bible tells us that the walls fell straight down. They, they just fell over. <laughs> well, we don't know exactly how that happened. Some speculate maybe there was some sort of earthquake. Some speculate that there was uh, uh, some fault, that the marching feet of the armies of Israel opened up beneath the walls 
course, we would say that this, you know, it's sufficient just to say that it was a miracle of God. If he could cause the earth to open up and, uh, and swallow those that were rebelling against Moses, uh, he could certainly cause the earth to open up and swallow the walls of Jericho. But the walls come down, and the city was, uh, and the command was to destroy the city and everything in it, sparing only the harlot Rahab and those who were in her house. And we talked about how she had been instructed to place a scarlet cord in her window as a sign that her house was to be spared the destruction. They were also told that the whole city was to be given to the Lord as an offering and that they were not to take any spoil for themselves, that everything that was not gold or silver or bronze, the gold, silver, and bronze was to be given to the temple, but that everything else was to be burned uh, as an offering to the Lord. They were told not to uh, touch any of the accursed things. Uh, nothing that uh, was there was to be uh, you know, taken as treasure or taken as loot. Everything was to be destroyed. And the city and itself was to be burned to its foundations. And at the, at the end of the battle, Joshua pronounces a curse against anyone who tries to rebuild the city of Jericho. And uh, it was very clear that Jericho was to be a symbol to all of the land of Canaan. Uh, that the, not only had the Israelites arrived, but that they were coming uh, with the power of the Lord to take possession of their inheritance. So if we were looking at this from a spiritual warfare perspective, I I think we would all understand uh, that one principle, maybe the first principle of spiritual warfare, is that we war by faith, not by sight. We, you know, the battle plan that the Lord gave Joshua would would not have passed uh, muster at the Pentagon. It wouldn't have been adopted by, you know, any uh, great uh, general or great army of history or today. That the Lord said, if you'll do it my way, it's amazing. It's amazing how many battles are lost just because of our disobedience and our lack of faith. If if we just do what God tells us to do, even though sometimes it may seem a little odd or seem a little out of step with the way the world would do things, uh, we may see quite a bit more success in our own ongoing warfare in this world. Now, my question is, the efficacy of that curse, is it beyond or up to our time, or up to the time the veil of the temple was rent? Is, is that a curse that is applicable even to today? I, I wouldn't read it that way. I think Joshua was limiting the curse to the person who rebuilds the city the first time. Of course, you could take it. You know, you could take it in a different sense. You could, uh, certainly I think we would all agree that 
anything the Lord destroys, uh, anything that is destroyed because of its sinfulness, because of its wickedness, because of its uh, its destructiveness in the life of his people, uh, to rebuild anything that the Lord has torn down and we uh, can bring uh, you know, something like a curse into our lives. But if you're talking about historically, uh, we know that Jericho was rebuilt. Um, Jesus, I think, was it, uh, I want to say it was blind Bartimaeus. I think that, that story was from Jericho. Um, but one thing we do know, at least in, up to the time of Jesus, even though the, there was another city there, uh, you know, the walls and the defensive fortifications and its use as a military outpost uh, had not been, at least in, in Jesus' day, had not been uh, redone. But uh, there is a story later in the scriptures, I, I had, I'm trying to think off the top of my hand, of, of someone who offered their firstborn as a sacrifice to gain victory over the Israelites. And I'm, part of me thinks that that was uh, a king who actually, a part of his kingdom was in Jericho. I'm trying to think, when we look at the price that had to be paid, First Kings chapter 16, verse 34. In his days, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. So that curse was literally fulfilled in the days of King Ahab, when King Ahab was in Israel. So there was a literal fulfillment of it, brother. It actually came to pass. But I also think to the present day, there's a spiritual lesson there to all of us and a spiritual warning there to all of us not to rebuild those things in our lives which God destroys. No, I, the walls of Jericho has become sort of a spiritual uh, shorthand for any obstacles or any anything that's trying to prevent uh, God's people from, you know, we, I'm going to guess here that I'm not the only one who was raised in churches that from time to time would do Jericho marches. Now, some of you listening to me, you may not have any idea what I'm talking about, but when I was growing up in the church, and it didn't happen a lot, but, you know, every once in a while, the, uh, the spirit would be moving, people would be worshiping, maybe there was an evangelist in town, and suddenly... You know, or spontaneously, or whether told to do it by the the preacher, somebody would get up and just start walking around the church, and then somebody would would get in behind them, and somebody would get in behind them, and you know, before you knew it, the whole church was just walking, you know, in a in a, in a circular way around the, the sanctuary. I I don't know if any of you saw that when you were young, like I did, but I you know I saw that I. I I walked him. I marched him. And, you know, the idea was there to any time there was anything that was preventing the church from breaking through or preventing the church from reaching the lost or preventing the church from, you know, whatever whatever the need was, that sometimes people would feel prompted to just get up and do 
you know, the Jericho march. And so I think it, it, it has become, to, to a lot of us, a symbol of the unconquerable, the, 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 the so-called impregnable defenses of the enemy that can only be overcome by the power of God. At school or university, whether it's, you know, in the political arena, whether it's in the social arena, you know, with the social uh, media that we have today, so openly hostile to, to faith and to God, um, I think we do need to pull down some walls, pull down some strongholds, and the story of Jericho can serve as inspiration. Now, but yes, the walls of Jericho is representative. I think where Jericho, if, I, I know we don't have a visual. I wish we could do this visually so I could show you on a map. You know, Jericho kind of sits at a very strategic point. It was the, you know, it was the fortified city, the walled city that guarded, you know, sort of the southern uh, flank of Canaan. You know, to get to come through that area, you had to get past Jericho. And so, you know, naturally, in the natural realm, it was a, a the highest priority military target for Israel. You didn't want to you didn't want to pass by Jericho without conquering it, because then you'd find yourself, you know, taking on your next enemy, and you'd have Jericho behind you, and you'd be caught in a trap. So, it had to come down. It had to be conquered. And the way it's conquered is through obedience and faith. You know, they were told not to make a sound for six days, so they didn't make a sound for six days. They were told to march seven times on the seventh day, and they marched seven times. They were told after the seventh time to shout and blow horns, and they did. And You know, it's amazing if we just do what God tells us to do, to your point about prayer and fasting and uh, doing the things that we know God works with and God works through, how many more battles against the Jerichos of our modern times uh, could be won? All right, so chapters 7 and 8 deal with the battle of Ai, or A-E. In chapter 7, Israel's defeated. In chapter 8, they're victorious. So it's funny to me. We get so caught up in the victories sometimes that uh, we kind of take some things for granted. And you can see that after the tremendous victory over Jericho, Joshua and the commanders of his army are are not uh, taking their next battle very seriously. You know, when I when I if I were to look for a spiritual principle at AI, it would be that there are no easy battles. There are no gimmies, as we like to say in the sporting world. There are no there are no layups. Uh, every battle has to be taken seriously, even if it seems like. It should be a relatively easy victory. The, the complication at AI was not only did they not take the battle seriously, but unknown to the commanders and to Joshua, one of the Israelites disobeyed the Lord's prohibition against taking spoils of Jericho. Somebody brought a piece of Jericho with them into the camp. And uh, you can make out of that uh, about a dozen different sermons. But um, 
For those of you that ever wondered who Achan was, Achan is the guy who found the Babylonish garment and the, the talents of silver and hid them in his tent. Because of his disobedience, the Lord did not fight for Israel in the first battle of Ai. And also, Joshua did not see any real need to commit uh, overwhelming forces. I don't know how many of you go back to the, uh, if you remember um, General uh, Colin Powell. I remember, I remember I was, this is the first desert storm. This is after Iraq invaded Kuwait and uh, General and the United States and other nations had formed a coalition to uh, drive Iraq back out of Kuwait, and he was giving a press conference, and he was asked what his strategy would be. And he said, our strategy is to be shocked and awe. <laughs> it is to commit overwhelming forces. So much power is going to be committed that the enemy will turn and run. And you know, Joshua took the opposite approach. He sent a very light platoon to take the city. He didn't think it would require much of an effort. But because of Achan's sin and because of Joshua's carelessness, Israel was put to the rout. And 36 of the soldiers were killed in the first battle of Ai. And, of course, this provokes Joshua to a great lamentation in and he goes through a whole list of complaints to the Lord of how the Lord can allow this to happen and how now all the cities of Canaan were going to hear about it and Israel was going to be a laughingstock and the Lord's name was no longer going to inspire fear. And so the Lord tells Joshua what's really going on. He exposes the sin that is in the camp of Israel and the family of uh, are the tribes of Ju uh, the tribe of Judah is selected? The families uh, uh, that Achan's family selected, and Achan and his household are selected. And uh, he confesses to his sin, and he is taken to a place called the Valley of Achor. Achor means trouble, <laughs> and there's a little play on words there, as he's, Joshua tells them, "As you have troubled Israel, so now the Lord will trouble you." And that is why it is called the Valley of Trouble to this day. And there he and his family and all of his possessions are put to death and, and destroyed. And Joshua is told to, to go back, uh, this time to Ai, with the Lord's counsel and with the Lord on his side. And Ai is destroyed. And so I think we need to understand, you know, two principles there. I think the first one I already mentioned, uh, take nothing for granted. There are no easy fights. There are no easy battles in warfare. Any, you know, we may think that something's a minor thing, but it doesn't take very much for a minor thing to ruin your day. And I think another principle we can draw from the battle of AI is, you know, if things aren't going well, if you're not winning, if it appears, you know, God has uh, not fought on your side, check the camp, right? Make sure your house is clean. Make sure your life is clean. Make sure there's nothing hidden 
you know, when I when I think of all the years I've pastored and all the years I've ministered in the church, uh, I know people think we pastors are omniscient, like our God. We're not. Many times I've wondered why isn't the church prospering? Why isn't the church reaching lives, reaching souls? What's holding us back? And you know, not really know the answer until suddenly, uh, over a period of time, something is revealed to be in the church that shouldn't be, whether it's a relationship, whether somebody's doing something they shouldn't be doing, whatever it is, you know, it becomes very obvious why the church wasn't, you know, being used or being as effective as it should be. Uh, so we need to check uh, when, we, when we're in warfare and things aren't going well, we just need to double check and make sure our lives and uh, the lives of those that we're in the battle with are, you know, have integrity before the Lord. I think that they assumed that because they were God's people, that God would just bless them and be with them no matter what they did. Um, I think after seeing what God did at Jericho, uh, I think they just took it for granted that the Lord was on their side and he would fight their battles for them. And and they didn't have to make the commitment. I and I don't know if you understand what I'm saying, but you know sometimes I think we get presumptuous of the Lord's favor. We get presumptuous of the Lord's grace. We we just we just figure, okay, well, you know, whatever, you know, uh, you know, God's going to do it, and and I don't really have to put the time or effort in. And, and I'll be honest with you, I've I've known ministers like that, you know where they just, you know, God gave them such powerful gifts and powerful anointings that they just didn't feel like they needed to study or they needed to pray or they needed to to put the efforts in that the common preacher had to put in and and how quickly that favor and grace. uh, You know, the Lord's blessing and the Lord's favor and the Lord's anointing makes all the difference. But we can never just assume or presume that it's an automatic. Yeah, Joshua, I'm sure that night before, you know, we're told before Jericho, Joshua was, was walking the hills. That's where he ran into the commander of the Lord, or the, the commander of the Lord's army. He was, you know, he was walking the hills. I'm sure he was praying. He was fasting. He was saying, God, we got to win this. But after Jericho, he was like, okay, you know what? God's with us. Just send 3,000 down there. That'll be enough. Uh, we we got to be careful about presuming on God's, favor. He does bless us and he does anoint us and we should never uh, feel like we have to earn that. But just because just because you have the Lord's blessing or the Lord's anointing doesn't mean you don't have to do the hard work. You know, he, he's given you the anointing to do the work, not to avoid doing the work. And, you know, the more anointing that you have, the more favor that you have, the harder you should pray and the harder you should study and the harder you should work because you've got God, you know, helping you. Uh, But too often we use it as an excuse or we use it as a substitute for our own uh, diligence before the Lord. All right, there at the end of Chapter 8, I just wanted to point out that there's a, uh, a story about Joshua fulfilling one of the last commands that Moses gave Israel, you'll, 
Remember, we saw it back in Deuteronomy, chapter 27. Moses told Israel, once you cross over and uh, the Jordan and come to this side, that you are to, uh, you know, you are to go to these two mountains and you are to put the law on stones written on these mountains with half the tribe standing on one and half the tribe standing on the other, one representing the blessings, one representing the curses. And, and we're actually told at the end of chapter 8 that Joshua and the children of Israel, after conquering Jericho and Ai, fulfilled that command. So it's just a, a little note there about obedience, you know, and how literally they took the commands from the Lord, how literally they took the commands from Moses to do. Remember what Moses told him back in Deuteronomy 6, be careful to do all that the Lord commands you to do. And uh, sometimes we think, eh, it's not that big a deal if I know I'm supposed to do this, but that's not really all that essential. If the Lord has commanded it to be done, he's got a reason. <laughs> you know, the Lord doesn't tell us to do anything uh, just for kicks. You know, every every little command, every little uh, thing that the Lord has asked of his people has a, a spiritual purpose. Chapter 9 tells the story of the treaty that Israel signs under deception with a group of people called the Gibeonites. Um, of course, word has traveled. Israel has already defeated two uh, cities of Canaan. The remaining kings in the southern portion of Canaan come together to make an alliance to fight against Israel. Uh, but the city of Gibeon decides not to join that alliance. Instead, they perpetrate a very elaborate ruse a con game on Joshua and on the leaders of Israel. They they find old clothes and old supplies and you know uh, horses that are worn down and and they uh, they pull up to the camp of the Israelites, pretending that they've come from hundreds and hundreds of miles outside of the land of Canaan. And there, they flatter Joshua. They tell him. Uh, that they know God is with them and that he's given them the land and they just they want to make sure that he's content with Canaan and he won't trouble their city. And so they uh, they ask for a treaty. And the mistake that gets made here is that Joshua does not consult with the Lord. And again, I think, brother, you were just talking about trusting the flesh, trusting our own instincts, just not taking the matter before God, not taking the matter and saying, kind of just assuming again that uh, what they are seeing is the reality of the situation and not being aware of the hidden uh, lie or the deception that's being perpetrated. And so they do, they do sign the treaty and give their word not to prosecute war against the Gibeonites, and of course afterwards the deception is exposed. They realize they have been tricked, but because they have given their word, even, I thought this was interesting, even under false pretenses, they've given their word, and the Lord told them, because you've given your word, you've given your word, more importantly, you've done it in my name, uh, you cannot prosecute war against the Gibeonites. Uh, so they come to an arrangement to make them, uh, you know, sort of water bearers and that sort of thing. But 
I think there's a great spiritual principle here about the flesh and, and the fact that there are no, you know, we talked earlier about no easy battles. I think it's also important to recognize there are no minor relationships. There are no minor decisions on who we come into covenant with or who we come into a relationship with. And, um, you know, the great mistake we all make. You know, I'm facing, uh, I'm trying, you know, I think we should try to cultivate seeking out the Lord's counsel, the Lord's wisdom, and the discernment of the Spirit of God. I, I remember my father used to, used to say, he prayed of all the spiritual gifts that he prayed for, he prayed for discernment more than any of the others. And I think this is a good example of what the lack of discernment uh, can result in, which is now a land that by covenant with God was to be utterly cleansed, utterly uh, eradicated of all the idol worshippers. Now they're stuck with the Gibeonites, and they can't drive them out because they did not talk to the Lord. All right, let's, uh, I think we've got time for Joshua chapter 10 here. So uh, this is one of my favorite stories in Sunday school. Uh, the sun and the moon standing still in the battle uh, that they fought here. Uh, I always, you know, tried to picture this in my, in my mind of, how did this happen? Did the earth just stop spinning? What, you know, and if the earth stops spinning, you know, was gravity suspended? Did, did people just start floating off into outer space? You know how you are when you're, when you're a little kid. You're trying to, trying to figure all this out. But the, uh, the details of the story is that the kings, five kings of the Amorites, uh, they came and made war against uh, Israel at uh, Gibeon, or made camp before Gibeon. So Gibeon had signed this treaty. The the uh, five kings there had found out that Gibeon had defected and gone to the other side. They got their armies together. They came to destroy the city of Gibeon. Uh, Gibeon sent word to Joshua because they were in treaty. They had made a treaty to defend Gibeon against its enemies. Joshua the armies of Israel come to the city's rescue. And the Lord tells Joshua not to be afraid that he's delivered these five kings into his hand. And Israel comes, and it's a complete rout. Now, five kings means five armies. So, you know, this is not a minor skirmish. And, you know, these are five large cities. Jerusalem is here. Lachish is here. Uh, this is a major battle, but they're completely routed. And then a couple of interesting things happen, right? One is, as the armies of the five kings are fleeing, the Lord begins to cast down large hailstones out of heaven. And we're told that more died from the hailstones than the children of Israel were able to kill with the sword. So... Uh, you know, the weather and the heavens are being marshaled by the Lord to destroy his enemies. And then Joshua, uh, as, they, as the day is getting long and as the, the 
the number of people is so great that they just don't have time to kill everybody. The, Joshua speaks to the Lord and, and says in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon, and moon, stand still in the valley of Aajalon. And guess what? The sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the people had taken complete revenge upon their enemies. And the scriptures tell us there has never been a day like that, before or after, when the Lord listened to the voice of a man and fought for Israel. So this is really, we've seen some great natural miracles, right? We saw the Red Sea, I think we'd all agree. That's one of the most impressive displays of the power of God. We saw the Jordan dry up. We saw manna fall from heaven. Uh, but this miracle to me, this is, this is bigger than all of them. This is cosmic. You know, the sun and the moon are heavenly bodies. And uh, if ever there was just the impression in anybody's mind that Jehovah was just some tribal god, some local deity, some god of a mountain or god of a valley or god of, of, of the wilderness. Uh, I think here all uh, doubts are put to rest that Jehovah is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the Lord over the heavens and the earth. And uh, this display of authority and power, I don't know how he pulled it off. I don't know uh, if this was a, you know, something that just happened in the region of Joshua or if this was over the whole planet. But uh, this testimony of is, is really where in the life of Israel, Jehovah goes from being just the local deity of the Jewish people to the Lord of heaven and earth. You know, human nature, uh, we put a lot more stock in what we can see than what we can't see. Uh, certainly today, uh, with all of the different ideologies and idolatries and all of the things that are happening in the world, it's easy to put the Bible, put God, put the things that happened in the past sort of in the rearview mirror. And just think, well, that was a different time, a different place. But I don't know that it's it's really just us. If you go on, you know, even in the book of Joshua itself <laughs> and the judges, the days of the judges that follow, the people who had lived through this miracle. Remember, there, there's people in the valley of, uh, of, uh, of, of Agilon who saw the miracle that day. And yet, Later on in the book will be, or later on in, in the story of Israel, will be offering sacrifice to idols and, and doing other things. So uh, human beings have uh, a great capacity for faith, but we also have a great capacity to, to trust more in ourselves and what we can see. And, you know, when you think about, the puzzle to me is bewildering. I don't understand it, uh, but you know it's it just seems to be the power. You know, the brother mentioned earlier the power of the world, the power of the flesh. I'm sure at some point he's going to get to the power of the devil. These these forces are real, 
They have real power, and they're really able to uh, corrupt people's minds. The Bible says the devil can so cloud the minds of people that they won't see the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, and we all see we all see evidence of that. But I think going back to these old stories, and I know some people say, "Well, Pastor, you know, you spent a lot of time this year talking about stories that some of us haven't heard since Sunday school. Some of us haven't heard them at all. You know, we skip over some of those places in the Bible because we we think we want to get to the good stuff, but." The power of these stories to remind us of who God is, what the Lord can do for his people, what the Lord has done and is willing to do for his people. Uh, I take great comfort and I take great uh, encouragement. And I hope everyone else does as well. I hope you're, I hope you're getting something out of these, these Bible studies because these are the foundations of everything that comes after, you know, and we see a Rahab here. She's part of the story of Jesus Christ. We see Joshua and his armies conquering the land of Canaan, and we know that one day the Lord will come with his armies and conquer the whole the whole world. So I think there's great comfort in knowing these stories, great encouragement in being reminded. But to a lot of people, to a lot of people, in the church and to almost everybody outside the church. These are myths, they're legends, they're fairy tales. They, they're not regarded as having any bearing on modern life. And that's a mistake, and it's one of the reasons why we're not as successful in prosecuting uh, the warfare of the Lord as we ought to be. All right, everyone, have a good night. God bless. We'll speak with you next week. This has been a production of the Lighthouse Church of God. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. You are welcome to join us for service every Sunday at 1030 a.m. and on Wednesdays at 745 p.m. For more information or to support our ministry, visit our website at www.lhcogfl.org. Or if you're in the Broward County area, we would love for you to visit our church located at 1890 Southwest 31st Avenue, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33312. God bless you. Until next time, this is the Lighthouse Church of God, lighting the way through the storms of life.